What does it mean to be a grown-up, and how do you get there? Megan Daum and Heather Haverleski will join us to talk about their cover reviews this week of How to Raise a Grown-Up and The Prime of Life. I don't think that the kids that are being taught the exact correct code to enter the 1% are necessarily being nurtured and taught to be happy individuals. What happens when a young woman loses all her money and identification in Casablanca? Vanda Levita will tell us about her new novel, The Diver's Clothes Lying Empty. I was so happy, and I think my mood was just, I was almost levitating above my chair in the police station. Alexander Alter will let us know what's going on in the publishing world. Greg Coles has bestseller news, and will also let listeners and readers ask a few questions for us editors here. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Heather Haverleski and Megan Down both join us now to talk about this week's cover, which looks at three books about what it means to be an adult and how you get there. Heather Haverleski is a columnist for New York Magazine and Book Forum and the author of the memoir Disaster Preparedness. And she reviews this week a book called How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success by Julie Lithcott Hames. And also here, Megan Down, the author of The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. And she reviews this week, The Prime of Life, A History of Modern Adulthood by Stephen Mintz. So Heather, welcome. Hi. And Megan. Um, Thanks for having me. Welcome. So these are two very different books, but they both look at um, adulthood and are reviewed alongside a third book, which A.O. Scott reviews called Why Grow Up? Subversive Thoughts for an Infantile Age. That kind of sounds uh, in a way more appealing. Um, But (laughs) uh, to get to these uh, two books, let's start um, with Heather. Tell us about this book, How to Raise an Adult. Is this a, a parenting manual? What is it exactly? It kind of is a parenting manual. I would say it's halfway between a cultural observation sort of book and a parenting manual because there are very specific instructions on how to raise an adult. Basically, Julie Liscott Hames, essentially she lays out a pretty strong case for the fact that we're entering an age of, or maybe even we've been in an age of helicopter parenting for some time now. Um, This isn't necessarily a very new uh, message. There have been plenty of other books about helicopter parenting. What I think is slightly new here is that she identifies the college admissions arms race as sort of the culprit at the center of the misguided ways that we think about parenting and think about raising children. On the other hand, a lot of the focus of the book is on how to raise an adult and what will your child be like when they are an adult and what are you doing to prepare your child for adulthood. I really enjoyed the book. I thought it made a very strong case for the fact that um, Julie Lithcott Hames was the dean of freshman and undergraduate advising at Stanford University. So she saw firsthand um, how parents uh, inserted themselves into children's lives even when they were in college. They would send questions to teachers. They would dispute grades, are often involved in homework, heavily editing their papers. Um, when they're in high school, they hire SAT coaches. They hire private admissions consultants, which I didn't even know what this was until I read this book. Her argument is that 
parents are becoming, they're hovering and they're becoming mouthpieces for their children, and their children are basically growing up to be 22, 23-year-old infants um, who can't really navigate the world on their own. The author's recommendation is that we uh, stop hovering, stop structuring every second of our kids' time, um, and we let them take on more responsibilities at a younger age. The thing that I really loved about the book was that she says over and over again, give your kids chores, leave them alone, let them discover things alone, let them learn on their own, and they will become adults who understand how to navigate the world on their own. Here's a question. When it comes to the financial anxiety, which I, I do think underlies a lot of overparenting, if you will, if in fact there is a disappearing middle class. If it if there really is this huge disparity um, in terms of the you know the one percent and everyone else, then isn't it in a way understandable that um, because there is just this tiny sliver of a one percent that so many parents feel like they have to do whatever they can to get their kids into that little microscopic level of success? It depends on wh- how you view the importance of being in the one percent. Right. I mean, I, you know. I sort of feel like if you're if you're going to emphasize the best schools and the best jobs and the best of everything to your kids over and over again and 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 get them on that path and explain to them if you're saying to your kids over and over you're going to be flipping burgers if you don't get into Harvard. I mean I I think that Julie Lescott Hames's argument is essentially that despite the hysteria around this there is not actually just this very rarefied elite world that you're welcomed into if you go to the right schools and you absolutely are rejected from if you don't go to the right schools. Um, She makes the case that the world is changing and it's actually more valuable to teach a kid to enjoy, you know, and discover and dream their own dreams um, instead of following a kind of checklist to crack the code of the upper 1%. 1%. Right. I mean, I understand that as a, as a value, and I definitely think that if you are a member of the 1%, it's understandable that you'd have anxiety around your children not doing as well as you did. Um, but I see a lot of unhappiness wrapped up in what we're, the kind of mentality that we're talking about, and I don't think that the kids that are being taught the exact correct code to enter the 1% are necessarily being nurtured and taught to be happy individuals right. um, as much as just being successful individuals. How does Lithcott Hames define success? That's a good question. The feeling that I get from the book is that she defines it as the ability to move through the world um, independently and to feel a lot of satisfaction from your own accomplishments and to perceive those accomplishments as independent of outside forces to some extent. I mean, now, obviously, a lot of our successes come from who we know and and who we're exposed to. Um, and I, I think that's undeniable that that's true. Megan, I, I want to bring you in for just one minute because um, the title of, of Julie Lithcott Hames's book is How to Raise an Adult. And the book that you reviewed, The Prime of Life, um, looks at sort of what adulthood means. Does what Heather's talking about, um, how she describes adulthood as portrayed in this book, how does that fit into what Stephen Mintz is talking about in The Prime of Life? It fits into it really nicely, actually. The Prime of Life 
it's a it's a survey. Stephen Mintz is an academic. He's a professor professor of history at the University of Texas, and he's written two previous volumes about American life passages. He's written a book about the history of childhood and the history of adolescence. So he's moving <laughs> up. <laughs> this was the uh, natural uh, next step, and. It's a it's a long book and it's exhaustive and he goes into great detail and along a lot of different paths. But ultimately, what he's saying is that you know this model of of adult life of family life um, that we see as traditional values uh, is really rooted in this 50s model that only existed in the in the 1950s and somehow it's become a uh, sort of yardstick by which all trends and social movements are measured. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting um, to hear Heather talk about the book she reviewed because um, this book is very different, but I think it, it gets at some, some similar ideas in that, you know, we have these kind of labels for for life passages and, and you know, ways of thinking about life choices that, that don't necessarily uh, reflect reality. One of the things I find interesting, though, is that um, in in the prime of life, and I think Stephanie Kuntz's uh, book, uh, The Way We Never Were, had a similar argument about the sort of aberration of 1950s family life, is that um, for a long time we spent, uh, we were nostalgic about that era. And what's interesting about the Lithcott Hames is that here's a nostalgia for the 1970s um, and you know, the period of sort of hands-off um, or freestyle parenting, um, free-range parenting that had really gotten a bad rap for a long time. Yeah. You know, I think it's natural for people to be nostalgic about the periods during which they were kids. So, you know, now the the generation that's raising young kids right now tends to be the Generation X people, right? So, you know, Heather and I are the exact same age. So, uh, you know, we we were kids in the 70s. And I think that what part of what you have now is a generation of parents who are, you know, sort of romanticizing that time in the same way that the baby boomers romanticized the 1950s. So, so some of this might just be a kind of uh, psychological phenomenon in terms of how we, we think about past eras. It's also sadly predictable. <laughs> oh, yeah. there are so many different ways to do it, though. When Stephen Mintz talks about adulthood in his book, The Prime of Life, he has a few points, right? One is that, that this has not been a static concept, but that it's changed over time. How has it changed? Well, it's interesting. You know, he really says that, you know, going back centuries, the concept of adulthood was was really fluid. I mean, for one thing, you got to remember, people died, you know, very, very young. So there actually weren't that many adults around. And another thing was, you know, we have, again, this notion, and it stems from this kind of the way we never were, 50s model, that, you know, if you really have your act together as an adult, you'll marry relatively young. You'll start a family. And in fact, before World War II, uh, he says most Americans didn't get married till their mid or even, you know, late 20s, early 30s. So the fear that comes through in how to raise an adult that we're sort of not preparing kids adequately for adulthood, um, but instead that they might enjoy this uh, period of prolonged adolescence that goes into well into the 20s. It sounds like Mintz is saying that's nothing new. This is always been there. Yeah, it's always been there. And, 
He also makes the point, which I thought was really welcome, that we really need to start thinking about adulthood in a, in a different way. I mean, the idea that you're not an adult until you, for instance, buy a house or get married or have children or have a particular kind of job or ascend to a particular class level, you know, these are constructs that are really not so useful anymore, that, that adulthood is kind of open to interpretation and, and needs to be something that we all sort of use uh, in a more creative way and, and in, in a way that's empowering rather than limiting. So a question for both of you after um, reading your respective books and, and uh, thinking about this, did you change the way in which you define adulthood? And I'll start with you, Megan. Well, you know, this was a great book for me to review. It's funny, I just um, recently uh, published a, uh, an anthology that I edited. Um, it's a collection of essays by 16 writers about choosing not to have children. That conversation really has uh, expanded into a larger discussion about what it means to be an adult and, and what it means to forego this life passage and, you know, something that most people associate with with adulthood. You're not really an adult until you have children. You know, in having worked on that project and having uh, worked with 16 different people, uh, having 16 different stories and interpretations of that decision, um, it was really interesting to to read this book and, and read about you know, how so many generations throughout history, um, getting married wasn't necessarily something that you were expected to do. Having children wasn't always something you were expected to do. We forget that, you know, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, um, people had just as many uh, conflicts and, and concerns and, and wanted to go their own ways as they do now. And And again, it really comes back to this idea that the 50s model was pretty specific to the 50s. Um, Heather, did you find, um, after reading this book about specifically about how to raise an adult, and obviously you're uh, doing this in your own life, did it change or challenge any of your notions of, of what that means? Reading Julie Lithcott Hames' How to Raise an Adult, definitely, the, the book definitely affected how I see the job that I'm doing as a parent. I mean, I, I think that I've sort of shifted my thinking, not only in making sure that I model being present and being open and and sort of moving through the world in a happy way with a sense of discovery. Not only am I trying to do that more after reading this book, but I also think that teaching kids that they can make mistakes and fail um, and that that's just a part of life, I think is really it's one of the best lessons you could possibly teach them. And as an advice columnist for New York Magazine, um, I get all kinds of different letters, but I get a lot of letters from women and men in their 20s who say to me, I should be further along in my life by now. I should, I should know the roadmap to adulthood. I should have magically arrived at some spot at you know, age 22 and known exactly how my life would be, and I should have a partner by now, and I should be on the way to having kids by now, and what's going on with me? There's something wrong with me. The truth is, and the thing that I write over and over again, is everyone is different, and in fact, it takes a lot of a lot of fumbling through the dark in your 20s in order to know what you even who you are let alone what you want from your life their definition of happiness is going to come from within and from a slow and very stop and start hesitating strange crazy path 
I guess the, the good news, bad news is that you can go directly from, oh, no, I haven't done X yet and I haven't done Y yet and I'm not there yet to feeling in your 40s like, oh, no, it's all done. And I've I, <laughs> and now I'm on the decline. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's just a slow road to death after that. That's right. (laughs) All right, Heather, Megan, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Heather Havaleski is a columnist for New York Magazine and Book Forum and the author of the memoir Disaster Preparedness. And she reviews this week on our cover, How to Raise an Adult by Julie Lithgott-Hames. And Megan Daum is the author of The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion and the editor of the recent anthology, Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. She reviews this week on our cover, Stephen Mintz's new book, The Prime of Life. Alexandra Alter joins us now with notes from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we've got stories about Amazon. Two different stories about Amazon broke this week, um, somewhat different. The the first is Amazon and Penguin Random House have come to an agreement in their sales terms negotiations, which is good news for people that remember the long drawn out fight between Amazon and Hachette last year, which caused a lot of hand wringing in the industry and um, actually ended up hurting some authors when their books, the shipments on their books were delayed or the buy button was removed in this sort of drawn out negotiation. And there was some speculation in May that something similar might happen with Penguin Random House in the UK and possibly in the US um, if the company decided to pull its titles off. But that thankfully didn't happen, and they've come to an agreement, although the terms of the agreement were not disclosed as usual. And Amazon came to an agreement with Simon & Schuster a few months ago, so so far nothing similar to the Hachette-Amazon fight has played out in later negotiations. So how many of the big five have agreed on new terms with Amazon thus far? Most of the major publishers have reached multi-year agreements with Amazon in the last few months. Simon & Schuster made an agreement with them last October. Macmillan also did in December. And in April of this year, HarperCollins and Amazon reached a multi-year agreement. So Penguin Random House was really the last one to go through the latest round of negotiations. But negotiations between Amazon and writers are continuing, particularly when it comes to this new subscription service, Kindle Unlimited, which is kind of one of these newfangled ebook subscription services where you pay a certain amount and you can read as much as you want. And there's been an ongoing debate about whether authors and publishers will come out okay in terms of the revenues and their income. This is like Columbia House Records for readers, right? It's like an old continuity program model. Or, I mean, the way they describe it is more Netflix for books. Or you could compare it easily to Spotify. The way they describe it for people who are younger than 40 (laughs) is what you're saying, Alexandra? Okay. And so... So Amazon, having gotten some complaints from writers who said, you know what, it's not fair. If I wrote a 1,000-page book, I get paid the same amount as someone who wrote a 20-page book, and their book is being borrowed or downloaded through this service. So Amazon has actually changed its payment system to say that authors will be paid based on the number of pages that are read in their book, as opposed to just paid a, a set fee for the book being read, which How is, Dickensian. is extremely Dickensian. And it's also, I mean, it's a kind of interesting thought experiment if you know you think about how you would write differently if you knew that you were being paid by the page and you had to keep people turning the pages. Um, A lot of the writers who've made their books available through Kindle Unlimited so far are self-published authors. Some of them have complained that their income has dropped dramatically as a result of books being sort of borrowed through or sampled through the system instead of downloaded outright. So this is perhaps an effort to change that. But it it does have interesting implications for how people approach and value books. I mean, are you going to just 
sample a few pages and then you think about whether the author, how much the author is going to get versus downloading a book and spending some time with it. It's sort of more of a browsing method. I find this raises all kinds of terrifying questions, which I plan not to answer to myself right now. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to have my salary depend on how much of my articles somebody read. Or if it was like that, I I don't know how I would write them differently to keep people reading. Hey, if it's quantity over quality, that's a lot easier for many people. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Venda Levita joins us now. Her new novel is The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, reviewed this week in the book review by Fernanda Eberstadt. Hi, Vendela. Hi, how are you doing, Pamela? Good, good. Um, um, this is your fourth novel. Yes. And you've referred to your previous three novels, The Lovers, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, and And Now You Can Go, as a trilogy on the subject of violence and rage. Did this feel like a departure from the novels that you've written before? It did, but I, I want to go back and say that I said that the first three books, I called them a trilogy, and in retrospect, I wish I'd never used that word, but I thought of them more as, uh, like, the more actually more like a triptych, like three books that kind of reflect upon each other and mirror each other, but they're not a trilogy in the sense that you don't have to read one to understand the other. This book, The Diver's Closed by Empty, eyes of departure for me in the sense that I really wanted to be lighter in tone and funnier and have a capacity for more humor. I love the idea of, of a triptych, a literary triptych, and feel like that should be the new trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> new trilogy, the new the triptych. Yes. So, okay, what is uh, The Diver's Closed Lie Empty about? It's about a young woman who travels to Casablanca, Morocco, on mysterious business. And while checking into her hotel, she's robbed of her wallet and passport, so all of her money and her identification. And though the police investigate, she senses a strange undercurrent and complicity between the hotel staff and the authorities, and she knows she's not going to recover her possessions. Stripped of her identity, she feels burdened by the crime, but she's also, because of what she's gone through recently in her past, and which she's trying to escape by coming to Morocco, she feels strangely liberated by her sudden freedom to be anyone she chooses. She has a chance encounter with a movie producer who is looking for a stand-in for a famous American actress who's on set in Morocco, and they're filming a movie at the hotel that the protagonist is staying in. And so soon she becomes a stand-in for this famous American actress, both on set but also off set as well. The famous American actress gets very accustomed to her having a stand-in, someone who will do things for her. And so she starts asking favors of her that go beyond the typical uh, employee relationship. There's so many um, stories, both literary and film, that take place in Casablanca. Did that inform what you were doing? Did it did it inhibit you in any way? Or I did watch a lot of films set in Morocco, but I, they didn't influence this that much. You know, like I said, the passenger really influenced it. But one thing that I did learn when traveling to Casablanca is that there's a reason that there are so many films that are shot in Morocco, and that's because there's a really famous film school in Casablanca that's supported by Martin Scorsese and other directors. And what this means and what this allows for is for directors from other countries to travel there without bringing their own crew, because they already know there's a really exceptionally trained crew waiting for them in Casablanca and in Morocco in general that can help them. And that actually helps cut down significantly on the cost of making a movie there. Of course, this may become a movie, but it has started as a book. Did you know that you were going to write the novel set in Casablanca? Or did you travel there first and then decide, okay, you know, become inspired by the setting? I became inspired by the setting 
I traveled there a couple of years ago, and while there, I was checking into my hotel room, and I was traveling with my husband, and all of my possessions were stolen, all of my important possessions, I should say, were stolen while I was checking in in the hotel lobby. Unlike the protagonist in the book, though, I did have my passport, I actually had my passport in my hand, and it was when I, while I was filling out my passport information that my, my possessions were taken. So I ended up watching myself on the surveillance camera and finding out what happened. It was kind of a ring of thieves who had been setting up this this crime. And But I ended up in the Casablanca police station about an hour after the crime occurred. I was telling the detectives and the chief of police what had happened. They were asking me all sorts of relevant information, like what was the profession of your great-great-great-grandfather? <laughs> With every subsequent question, I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way my stuff is ever going to be recovered. But everything's already been erased from my laptop and it's probably been sold at this point. But I had been circling this idea of a novel for a few years and written scenes of it. Um, it was, I knew the novel was about the malleability of identity, but I didn't have my entry point into it. I didn't have my beginning. And while I was sitting there in this Casablanca police station, I suddenly realized that this was my beginning to the novel, um, and that this is what would happen to my protagonist. And I was so happy, and I think my mood was just, I was almost levitating above my chair in the police station. And I'm sure my attitude really confused everybody in the police station. I think I'm <laughs> probably the happiest person to ever be there. That said, the rest of the book is completely fictitious and invented. Um, when you wrote this, decided to write the book, um, there's a very uh, particular thing that hits the reader right away, which is you use the second person. Why did you use the second person? You know, I started using the second person, and I never looked back. Um, I started writing it, and it just came out in the second person, and it seemed to work for the book because I as mentioned, it is about the malleability of identity, and I like the idea of putting the reader in the protagonist's shoes right from the start. I'm also a big fan of Laurie Moore's short stories. There's a Gino Diaz story in the second person, and more recently I read a, a novel by a French writer, Juliette Deck, who wrote a novel called Vivian, which actually experiments a little bit between first, second, and third person. As a writer, you're always trying to challenge yourself, and I never used a second person before, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And there ended up being an advantage I hadn't thought about when I first decided to use second person, and that is that the protagonist is constantly shifting and changing her identity throughout the book and assuming different names. She's Reeves, she's Sabine, she has many different names that she takes on. And by using the second person, I felt like I was freeing the reader from having to keep track of which name she was using at a particular juncture. They didn't have to think, okay, who is she now? She was always you. And it also plays with identity, too, in the way that the reader identifies with the character. You know, yeah, it's in the second person, I'm still, you know, I've written a book now, obviously, in the second person, and... I'm still intrigued by it because, you know, the you can be someone talking to themselves. It could be talking to someone else. It could be accusatory, like, you do this, you do that. You know, it can be like the scene in a movie, like the bad version is like the guy goes into the bathroom and he, you know, he looks in the mirror and he's like, you got to get your life together or something. something really <laughs> I always think of choose your own adventures. Oh, yeah, exactly. Someone else brought that up, and I hadn't thought about that before, but yes. Um, a reader recently at a, a book signing brought that up, and I was like, oh, that's a really interesting point. Why don't you uh, read just a little passage um, aloud to give listeners a sense of how it reads? This is a, I'm gonna, a passage I'm going to read. It comes fairly early on in the book. It's right after the protagonist who is not me, but it's you, has been um, has been robbed of her belongings, and she's being escorted to the police station. A young man in a plaid shirt and clean sneakers has been assigned and paid by the hotel to take you to the police station. 
You have no idea what his affiliation is with the hotel. He's not in uniform, but he has kind eyes, the green of an old leather atlas, and you trust he will get you where you need to go. He opens the back seat of the car for you, and you get in. You see, on the floor of the seat next to yours, a pair of leather shoes, and you wonder what they're doing there. You know Paul Bowles, the driver says, out of nowhere. Because you're staring at the old leather shoes, you think for a brief moment he's going to tell you that they belong to Paul Bowles. Yes, you say. You know who Paul Bowles is. You devoted a paragraph, or maybe even a page to him, in a college essay you wrote about post-World War II bohemians. You had no prior interest in the subject, nor any sustaining interest, for that matter. You signed up for the class because the professor was intriguing to you. She was a burn victim, and two-thirds of her body was scarred, but this made her more beautiful. You weren't the only one who thought this. The class was filled with young male theater majors and aspiring poets. You were the sole athlete in the class. When you met with her in her office to discuss your mediocre essay, she obsessively rubbed a potent-smelling vitamin E lotion onto her shiny red wrists, her lavender-hued elbows. She kept a large tube of the lotion on the corner of her desk where others might place a colorful paperweight. Each time she loudly squirted the lotion onto her palm, you silently marveled at the framed photos of her swimsuit-clad children, their skin impeccably unflawed. Everyone knows Morocco because of Paul Bowles, the driver says. My father read for Mr. Bowles. Read for him, you ask? You are certain that Paul Bowles could read. At the end of his life, Mr. Bowles could not see well, the driver says. My father lives in the same building, and sometimes Mr. Bowles asks neighbors to read for him, and so sometimes he asks my father. Cool, you say, because you can't think of anything else appropriate. Uh, did you feel like you had to address Paul Bowles in some way in this book because of the setting? I felt like I did actually have to address Paul Bowles. You know, I think sometimes you have to acknowledge your influences in some way, or at least make a wink to them. And when you do go to Morocco, people do talk about Paul Bowles a lot. You know, Americans obviously go talk about him, but also the Moroccans do. And there is a certain thing I've heard if you go to Tangier, there are many, many um, young men dressed in white suits sitting at cafes trying to kind of emulate Paul Bowles. Um, and the irony is that he never wrote in, in a cafe. Paul Bowles actually did like 95% of his writing in bed. <laughs> I want to go, uh, before we end, back to the beginning for a moment and just talk about the title because um, you have these very distinctive titles to your book, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name. Now you can go and hear um, The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty. Did you, how did you come up with that title and what, is it, what does it signify? So I get a lot of my titles from, from poetry. In terms of this book, the new one, The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, I was halfway through the book and I had a draft, and I was sharing it with some friends who are writers, and I was trying to think of a title, and I knew that the protagonist was a diver, and I knew that she had been a diver in high school, and I was trying to figure out a title, and a friend of mine, a writer, said, well, there's that roomy poem about a diver. Maybe you can look at that. Maybe you'll find some inspiration in, in that poem. And so five minutes after our conversation, I walked down the street. We're in Valencia Street in the Mission District in San Francisco, and I went into my, my favorite bookstores, um, and I got the book. I bought it. I paid for it, and I stood right outside the store, right in the middle of the street, and lots of people were walking around me, but I was so desperate to get to the poem right away. And I, I found the poem, and I read it, and I had that sensation that I can only describe as a chilling sensation that the poem was in so much about, um, shared so many of the same themes as my book, and I knew that I wanted to use the title as my own. So that's where it comes from. It comes from Rumi's poem, The Diver's Clothes Lying Empty. And there you have it. 
The Diver's Clues Lie Empty by Vendela Vita, reviewed this week in the book review by Fernanda Eberstadt. Vendela, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pamela. John Williams is here as our representative of readers. Hi, John. Hi, Pamela. So you're going to pass along some questions we got via Twitter this week. Today's first question is from Deborah Raffi. She asks, how do you choose books to review? Is there a slush pile of books published by indie publishers, or are they all agented books? All right. So there's three questions in there. Um, let's just start with the little ones. Um, are they all agented books? By the time a book gets to us, we have we don't really know um, how it got to the publisher. Things come to us via the publishers. So whether the authors were represented by an agent or not in negotiating a deal with a publisher, we're not necessarily aware of. Um, we can look in the acknowledgments or try to find it out online um, if, if it's not a big author. The indie publishers, is there a slush pile of books um, published by indie publishers? There, there isn't a slush pile at the at the book review. Everything comes in. It is all on one huge pile. It goes into um, a huge room of shelves, and we go through it all together. And it, we don't really distinguish um, when we're going through it between smaller uh, independent presses and um, the big, you know, five publishers. Um, what we do distinguish between, and I think this is going to get to. Another question, which is uh, self-published books. But let's wait for that question. I'm going to ask the big question um, that Deborah Rafi posed, which is, how do we choose books to review? Um, and the answer is that's our almost our entire job here uh, is trying to pick out what books to review. And there are many factors that go into it. Each of the editors here gets a carton of books every week or two. Um, they go through those books. They decide which ones they think merit consideration. Um, and I would say that dividing those books, um, you sort of end up with a first cut of these are the books we absolutely know we're going to review. These are the books that I absolutely know we're not going to review. And then the hardest part, which is the books that fall in mm-hmm. the middle. And they have to look at those books and come up with um, reasons why they think we shouldn't review if we if we choose to pass on it um, or a justification uh, for why we should review it. Um, and, and that's really a... A complicated uh, formula of uh, personal taste, judgment, a decision that has to do with not only the, you know, how the book reads to that editor, but also what they think might be of interest or importance to our readers. Yeah, to general readers. Yeah, it's definitely more of an art than a science. Yes. I mean, it's very frequently where an editor will come into my office and say, this book isn't my taste, um, but for readers who like um, vampire stories set in South Carolina, this is the one, (laughs) Um, or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, So they're able to, uh, while they each have books that they like and and don't like, they can kind of extricate themselves uh, from the process personally to judge whether a book is of literary merit, even if it's not their particular cup of tea. Right. And now getting to the question that we hinted at in the last answer, uh, which comes from D.S. Woodard, who asks, how many self-published books do you get on a daily basis to review and how long does a review take? Well, I can say that I can't say the answer to the first one because we don't really, they don't really come to my desk. Um, They are weeded out, I'm afraid to say beforehand. We do let people know that we don't look at self-published books. Um, As it is, we review about 1% of the books that are published by mainstream uh, publishers or independent publishers sort of by publishers. That is already a large group of books that it 
that doesn't get in. If we added self-published books to that pile, I think we would be here all day and all We'd night. Have to triple our staff. Probably. That's right, and then That's we would be, McCarty's. you know, covering 0.001 percent of the books that come out in a given year. So. Our formula has been that if a book is available at a bookstore, in a library, um, uh, and online in general, that uh, that's a book that we would consider covering. And alas, that does not generally include self-published books. Right. Sorry. Well, that's a little more uh, behind the curtain. And so hopefully we'll get some more questions this week on Twitter at NYTimesBooks, or people can email us at books at NYTimes.com. So we look forward to more questions. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks, Pamela. Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Not a lot this week. There are three uh, new titles on the fiction list and just one over on nonfiction. Uh, let's start with fiction. Down at number 14, Joseph Finder has a new standalone thriller called The Fixer. Then at number seven, Laurel K. Hamilton continues her Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series uh, with a book called Dead Ice. This one um, is about Anita Blake helping the FBI investigate zombie porn. Okay. And then uh, at number six, Dorothea Benton Frank uh, has another book set in the South Carolina Low Country where she uh, sets most of her fiction. This one's called All the Single Ladies. All right. And then over on nonfiction? On nonfiction, there's uh, just one new title, as I mentioned. It's by the actress and comedian and wife of uh, George Stephanopoulos, Allie Wentworth. It's her second book. It's called Happily Allie After, an essay collection about... Uh, trying to improve herself as her 50th birthday was approaching. That's new at number 13. Her first book was Alley in Wonderland. Yes, it was. And that was uh, really a memoir about her um, political childhood. She grew up as um, the daughter of Nancy Reagan's social secretary. And so she used to go swimming with Henry Kissinger. And you know, um, she, she told stories about that childhood. And then also about her career in Hollywood. She uh, Her big breakout success was on the comedy sketch show in Living Color. She was one of the characters in that. And then also about life as Mrs. George Stephanopoulos. So, uh, so that was kind of a memoir. This one's more of an essay collection. All right. And then in terms of what's not new, let's just talk very quickly about what are the top uh, nonfiction and fiction books this week. Sure. The top book on the fiction side is The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. That has been number one for a long time, although last week it was displaced by Stephen King's Finders Keepers. This week they uh, switch places. Finders Keepers is now down at number two and Girl on the Train is back up at number one. And uh, it's hard to avoid a stupid pun um, with <laughs> the next title soaring to the top of the list. David McCullough, The Wright Brothers, was at number one last week. It remains at number one this week uh, in its sixth week on the list. I should also uh, mention quickly there are three new titles over on the children's list, all by very prominent authors. Um, Bill O'Reilly, of course, the Fox News host, uh, has a book on the middle grade list, new at number four. It's called Hitler's Last Days. So it's kind of a kid's version of his killing series that uh, had killing JFK and killing Lincoln. This is sort of killing Hitler. So uh, if you're looking for a book about killing Hitler by Bill O'Reilly for kids, you've got it right here. <laughs> That's right. Hitler's Last Days, new at number four on the middle grade list. On the picture books list, Jimmy Fallon, another TV host, uh, has a picture book called your baby's first word will be dada. And mommies will just have to deal with that. <laughs> That's right. And then 
On the young adult list, um, Sophie Kinsella, who's best known as the author of Shopaholic and other books for adults, has a young adult novel called Finding Audrey, new at number five. So kids don't have to pilfer their parents' bookshelves anymore. All right, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.